0: Hey everyone, Um, happy Valentine's Day Um, (laughs) or uh, happy Singles Awareness Day if that's more like fitting for you. Just kidding, we love you. Those of you who are single, we've like actually taught on this, how much we love you and you're not less than at all for being single. Um, Yeah, I mean, oh, sorry. (laughs) This is major technical difficulties. I literally just lost all of my notes on my iPad. So I'm going to go get my computer and we'll be back after this commercial break. It's all good. Yeah, you can read the text.
1: (laughs) Technical difficulties, uh, I wonder. This is, once again, uh, MacGyver Church. Here we go. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 12 today. We're going to be beginning in verse 28 and we'll be going all the way to verse 34. So I'm going to read this. And then we're going to pray, and then Isaac will be back with his, his well-made notes, and we'll be ready to go. Let me read this for us. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked Jesus, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that God is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole of burnt offerings And sacrifices, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, said to the scribe, "You are not far from the kingdom." And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Uh, Father, thank you again uh, for your word. Um, Even when uh, technology and venues drop out, uh, it's just uh, a a matter of, of just reminding that you are faithful. Your word. Uh, is faithful. It does not drop out on us. And so now as we uh, listen uh, from Pastor Isaac and we meditate on the teachings of Jesus here, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see what it means, this calling to love you with all that we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves? Speak through Pastor Isaac. Give us ears to hear and and hands uh, that seek to actually put this into practice in the week ahead. Be with us now in whom we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. <laughs> Thanks, dudes. Thank you for uh, bearing with us there in cyberspace for that amazing technical difficulty. Um, as Ryan said earlier, we lost our in person venue for those of you who registered. In person, and we're planning on being with us this Sunday morning. That didn't happen, and now we have technical difficulties where my iPad just forgot to carry the file uh, that I had my notes on. So great. But I have my computer here, so we're good to go. Um, and today, uh, as Ryan just read for us, we are going to be talking about love. Very fitting for Valentine's Day. Um, and you know, everyone makes fun of Hallmark and the sentimentality around Valentine's Day. But the reality is that love governs almost everything that we think about every single day. If you go and you look at like the top 40 on the charts on Spotify right now, every single one of those songs is either about love or the lack of love. And one of the most misunderstood concepts that we can possibly think about today is love. And I think a day like Valentine's Day actually shows us that. And in Jamie Smith's book, You Are What You Love, he determines that love determines everything about who we are and who we become. To paraphrase him, he says, our deepest desires that orient the entire direction of our lives are not inherent to us but they are actually cultivated. Love is a virtue, he says. It is an element of our character that operates more in the realm of our lives that remains unseen. The habitual parts of us that have become automatic. This is what shapes our desires, what we love. And we learn to love almost in the same way that we learn to drive. You know, when you're first 16 and you get behind the wheel and your palms are sweaty and you're overthinking every little thing, like, you've got to adjust the mirrors this way and you get the right foot on the gas and you adjust the mirrors and you look over your shoulder and if you have a clutch, you're pretty much screwed, right? And it's just like, everything is chaos. But now, man, that's like muscle memory. Now you could like get in your car after work and you could be thinking about like anything else, like where you're going to order ramen when you get home. And you're home before you even know it, boom, you're in your driveway, you're in your parking garage. It's because it's muscle memory. It's because things like this, like love, that are cultivated by constant, repeated activity over years. We develop our best and our worst habits this way. From the reflex you have now to, like, whip out your phone whenever you're bored to the muscle memory of a trained athlete or a musician. The most celebrated things in our human existence were developed habitually into our unconscious. What we love ultimately is revealed by who we are when we're on autopilot. But we don't think of love this way, really. We don't view love as something that has to be cultivated the way that we develop virtues or even vices. We think that if something is truly lovely or lovable, that it has to be coming from this authentic place, that it has to start with a feeling or a thought and bubble up, and that leads to action. But that is not how human beings work at all. I think we know this, that we're not actually primarily thinkers or feelers, that we are actually integrated. Heart, mind, soul, and body. And that learning to love is more like playing scales over and over again on the piano than learning music theory. It's muscle memory, and it becomes available to us through practice. And the problem is that if we're not actively cultivating habits of love, then our love is being cultivated by a plethora of different forces around us again, on an unconscious level, by the phones we carry, by the stories we consume, by the lifestyles of those we desire to emulate. And today we're going to see Jesus's conversation with this scribe, with this uh, Bible nerd guy, brings this conversation, this reality to the surface. In the middle of something of a, a courtroom drama that's playing out, Jesus busts out the greatest commandment, as it's known. And as Ryan read for us earlier, it's also, even though it's the most well-known commandment, it's probably the hardest to actually do. So Ryan read the story for us. We're going to jump in chapter 12, verse 28. And we see Jesus on trial. Verse 28 says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And we have to backtrack. We have to retrace our steps a little bit from the past couple of weeks because here we have Jesus in the temple and there's there's a courtroom drama kind of playing out. And it all started a little bit earlier, a day before when Jesus actually drove out all of the happenings in the temple because of the corrupt business practices that had become associated with giving sacrifices to God. The Jewish religious authorities wanted to challenge Jesus because of his rebuke of them in the middle of all of these people who had come to celebrate Passover, but they were afraid to do anything to Jesus because his words had captivated huge crowds of people who were there from all over Israel and even further. And he even tells a story, Jesus tells a story, accusing the religious leaders of mismanaging the role that God gave them as leaders of Israel. And they go away angry, plotting how to catch him. So this conversation that we have today happens in the middle of their next attempt to trap Jesus by getting him to say something incriminating so that all the people who are gathered there would see that Jesus is bad news. That what he did at the temple, publicly condemning the Jewish leadership, that they might then publicly catch Jesus saying something incriminating. And last week we saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two other religious Jewish leaders, take a crack at Jesus and completely fail. And this week we get the final scene in this public debate from a scribe, again, like a Bible nerd, all right? And at this point, all possible subcategories of Jewish leadership have now been in conflict with Jesus. So even though it was kind of like a legal situation going on, you could probably imagine it more like a, like a rap battle or something. Like someone's coming up and like throwing down a verse, and then another guy comes up and like has something better to say. If you've seen Hamilton and you know like the cabinet battle that happens where they're like rapping about nerdy stuff like politics and legal proceedings, that's probably <laughs> more like what's going on here. But verse 28 says, "...seeing that he answered them well." Now this is referring to the previous story where Jesus throws down on the Sadducees with a story from the Torah. He talks about Moses and the scribe's ears perk up and said, did somebody say Torah? Because that's that's my department. That's exactly what I do. So I'd like to cross-examine the witness. So the scribe steps up to the plate. But he doesn't do it maliciously. It seems like Mark is telling us that he's actually curious if this rabbi Jesus actually had the answers. So he asks him, what is the greatest commandment in the law, in the Torah? Now, this would have been a question that was very familiar. Within Jewish legal debate, this would constantly come up. What is the one thing within the Torah, within the law, that all of the other commandments hang on? All of the other commandments make sense because of this one thing it kind of like trickles down from this one central commandment. And there's actually a story about another famous rabbi earlier than Jesus named Rabbi Hillel. And there was a guy who was not Jewish who came up to him and said, I'll convert to Judaism if you can tell me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot. And Hillel said, okay. He said, that which is hateful to you, do not do. The rest is commentary. Now go and learn. (laughs) So this kind of like legendary throwdown has happened before. He's essentially saying the opposite of the golden rule. Not do, but actually don't do whatever is hateful to you. So actually, even beyond Jewish legal debate, this is a pretty common thing. It's the great task of all good teachers not to be eloquent or to elaborate, but actually to summarize and distill To be able to communicate the greatest amount of truth with the least amount of words. Like Mark Twain said, if I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. For this scribe, this question was not only central to what he did, but the most important question he could ask, because it would reveal where Jesus stands on something that was the most important to him. Like a religious litmus test. Are you on my side? Or are you not? I'm sure all of us have like a whole list of questions that we would ask Jesus if we had, you know, 10 seconds with him and probably uh, something more important than whether the chicken or the egg came first or how to pronounce gif or jif or however you pronounce it. Uh, Probably something more like how would you have voted in November, Jesus, right? Something a little bit more dicey and spicy, so how does Jesus respond to this all important question? Verse 29. Jesus answered, "The most important is: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this: You shall love your neighbor as yourself." There is no other commandment greater than these. So in Jesus' response, we see the first of three facets of love that are going to play out in this story. First is that love is all-encompassing. Jesus is asked for one commandment, and he gives two. Kind of like a two-for-one deal. And it's important to note that Jesus' response is actually one of only five times in the New Testament gospel accounts that he gives A direct answer to what he's asked. Usually, he either asks a question in response, or he tells a story, or he redirects the conversation entirely, but he gives this guy an answer. And it's probably because he knew that the scribe was genuinely asking. It wasn't coming from a place of malicious intent. The scribe wanted to know where Jesus stood, so he gave him a serious answer. And it was probably the least controversial thing that Jesus has ever said. It's the most central claims of Judaism. If you go into any synagogue uh, on the weekends, on the Sabbath, this is the climax of the service. These two commandments will be said in Hebrew, actually sung in Hebrew, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's the most important moment in the service. And it's important that Jesus actually says that the most important commandment is not thou shalt not, but you shall. It's not a negative, but a positive command. And Jesus is not saying anything new here. (laughs) Mark is actually affirming that Jesus' view of the Torah of the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is legitimate and that where he disagrees from the other Jewish authorities is more due to them not accepting his authority over it. So what makes these the most important? Well, as we said today, it's love. And this is where we need to take off our shoes and stay a little while today. Because like we said earlier, love is actually one of the most misunderstood concepts in the world. It's love that shapes who we become. You are what you love. So the first question we need to ask is, why command love? Is God needy? Does God like really need our love? He's like, come on, guys. Or shouldn't it just be natural to love God? If that's what we're supposed to do, shouldn't God like appear to be more lovable? It's more obvious how we're supposed to love God. No and no. There's a reason that Jesus points to this as being the most important thing in the Torah. And it's because God knows that what you love most is what you worship. And that worshiping anyone or anything other than God the creator leads to complete disintegration of our lives. And this is what author David Foster Wallace brilliantly and legendarily said in his commencement address. It's been quoted many times, but it bears repeating now. He said, everybody worships the only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. Worship your intellect, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're not evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is what you are doing. The words of this man who did not love God, (laughs) did not even believe in God, hit home exactly where Jesus is pointing to. It is because of our bent towards giving ourselves away to lesser loves that God commands us to love him as the only one actually worthy of all of our love. Because it's actually easier to love things that are less worthy of our love. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. Not worshiping or bowing down to statues, but actually giving our love away to those less deserving of it. This is why the great commandment doesn't just start out by saying, love God, but actually first calls us to recognize who God is. Hear, O Israel. Listen, obey Israel. The Lord is your God. The Lord alone, or the Lord is one. It could be translated both ways. This is because that is our natural disposition, friends, to actually be uncalibrated in our loves. Sin leads to disintegration and a lack of awareness of what we actually love, this disconnect between our head, our hearts and our hands is what's at stake here. Human identity is the convergence of body, soul, mind and heart. This intricate system was created by God And has been disrupted through sin, which is the love of anything other than God. Rebelling against God's design of who we were meant to be. So sin results in this disintegration of fundamental aspects of what it means to be a person. And we experience this incongruence between our thoughts and our feelings, our motives, our desires, our bodies, and our souls. It's all part of this breakdown because we long to be integrated and loved. Many of us feel like we need to alter some aspect of who we are to become more acceptable to others. And this is because sin causes us to be unable to receive God's incredible love for us. And this is why Jesus further commands us to love with all of our heart, soul, mind, And strength. And these four realities actually mean two things. The first is that he's saying, Love God with all you got, love with every fiber of our being. We say this all the time. It does mean that, but it also unpacks the question what is a human being? How do we love? How do we actually give ourselves away to others? with our heart, with the seat of our decisions, with our soul, with the essence of our lives, with our mind, the realm of our thoughts, and with our strength, the actions we carry out through our bodies. We don't just love with our feelings or our thoughts, but with our desires and our actions, the entirety of ourselves. Because we're not just disembodied souls with body suits. God gave us bodies to connect our desires with our action our hearts with our hands. And this is why when one element of the love equation is missing, it feels empty. And we've all been experiencing this in a ridiculously annoying way throughout the pandemic as we sit on Zoom and try to make human connections with one another. We try to develop community. Dallas Willard said that our experience of others is inescapably an experience of their embodied existence. So settling for virtual connection ought to make us feel frustrated, but it is worth it. (laughs) It is a good thing to wrestle with and not become numb to that because each aspect of our lives has a role to play in how we love and who we become. We can't change, we can't affect change rather in our lives if we don't know how we as human beings are formed. So discipleship or the process of learning to follow Jesus and become more like him involves thinking, feeling, integrated with being and doing, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can't think that we're actually loving with all of ourselves when we're holding something back because we're actually unaware of our true desires. And we think we have come to love God very often and be transformed by God with our minds only. This is how many theories of human growth and development work, especially in Western culture. We follow Descartes' model of I think, therefore I am, And so we think that we just have to get the right knowledge into our heads somehow and that that alone is going to change us. But according to Jesus, that's only one fourth of the process. All of us have had the experience of being really inspired to change, you know, like whether it was a sermon that we heard, a great book or a great podcast, we we get inspired to change and we think that's it. That's what I needed to hear. But then we don't have the power to carry it out. Nothing changes. Jamie Smith once again says, we, we need an integrated approach to love. Not you are what you think, but you are what you love. And he says this, he says, if you are what you love and love is a habit, then discipleship is a re of your loves. It is more of a matter of reformation than of acquiring information. What we love dictates what we do and who we become. And what we love most is shaped by the habits we form with this mind, body, soul, heart connection. We cannot separate any one of them out and expect to live lives of devotion to God. And the problem is that we think we know what we love, but our lives tell a different story. So we need to ask, how does our love get aimed, and directed. Smith, in his book, invites us to take an audit of the rituals that we have developed in our lives. He asks, what are some of the things that you do that are actually doing something to you? Where do you spend your time when it's not being demanded of you? How about your bank statement? What does it say? Where does your money go? These are the choices that actually reflect where our ultimate loves reside. And most of us don't want to sit still and reflect on these things because we know it would take substantial change to our lifestyle to begin aligning what we actually love with what we say that we love. So what are some of the things that need to take place of the things that we need to refrain from? What habits can actually cultivate our love for God? Well, one of them we're doing right now. (laughs) We're listening to God's word. And I'm so glad that you are here, that you are tuning in or that you're listening later on, that you're engaging with God's word, even though it's been hard to do, especially throughout this last year, throughout the pandemic. Do not give up on this, friends. These rhythms of the local church are, as we say often, it's God's plan A for carrying out his mission. But these, listening to God's word on Sunday, it's only one piece of shaping our desires. We need spiritual disciplines like prayer, like studying scripture on our own, like celebrating with one another, like confessing our sins to one another. Silence and solitude, which Ryan taught on back last year. These practices that can radically reshape us. But the real litmus test for our love is revealed by the second commandment that Jesus mentions. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, nothing new. He's quoting from the book of Leviticus chapter 19. But what he's saying by connecting these two is that our love for God is actualized in love for our neighbor. If we say that we love God, then there will be actual tangible results expressed in how you love others. And one of Jesus's followers, John, put it this way in his letter in the New Testament. He says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So we can't say oh, I'm good on the whole loving God part, but it's just really hard for me to love other people. If that's true, then there's something else than, that we're loving more than God if we can't also love our neighbor. And usually in instances when we have opportunities to love our neighbor and we do not, we are loving and preferring our own comfort. Loving our neighbor often needs to start with just getting to know them which is really hard right now, obviously, but we often prefer our own comfort over even getting to know who our neighbors are, let alone inconveniencing ourselves for them, a big part of loving them. It's hard to get to know our neighbor, to love our neighbor, and then to speak truth to our neighbor as well, when you know maybe they won't receive it, but this is what it looks like To love them. And ultimately, it's unloving, even to ourselves, to not love our neighbor as ourselves because we become further entrenched in the habit of preferring comfort over love for others. But did you notice that Jesus says, You must love your neighbor as yourself? Notice that the commandment to love your neighbor assumes self love. We've gotten very good in our culture, in our day of talking about self-care, but not exactly talking about self-love or even defining what that means. Self-care can often take a, like a sour turn from doing a good thing, like taking a day off when you really need it, towards more of like treat yourself, <laughs> like Tom Haverford style, just like binging on consumerist, like mindless consumerism. Rather, and saying, actually, that's a healthy balance? No, it's not. Self-love is having a charitable understanding of yourself as someone who is loved by God with infinite value and filled with inherent dignity, purpose, and meaning. And maybe one problem is that we don't actually believe this about ourselves, so we don't extend the same courtesy to our neighbors. But Jesus says that there is no other commandment greater than these. Why is that? I believe it's because if you fulfill this positive command, then you will never break one of the negative commands. There's a difference between following the law and fulfilling the law. We looked at this back in the story of justice, but the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And in saying these are the greatest commandments, he is upholding the law and calling us back to its purpose. So what does the scribe think of Jesus's response to love God and to love neighbor? Verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He says, You're right. AKA, no further questions. (laughs) It's remarkable that the scribe answers Jesus. He's the only one within this debate that actually does. And there's no argument from him whatsoever. So it seems like Jesus has actually won him over. And he even brings up this point about burnt offerings and sacrifices, which Jesus didn't even mention. So why is this guy bringing up burnt offerings and sacrifices connecting to Jesus' statements about love? Well, we need to remember where they are when he's saying this. They're in the temple. Exactly where they're standing is where Jesus, just like a day earlier, had judged the leadership for how they were handling the temple and the sacrifices, the very thing that sparked this trial. So the scribe is actually affirming Jesus by saying, judging the temple as corrupt does not mean that he's standing in opposition to the Torah. So he brings up the sacrifices, and one thing that's implied by that, that he might not even realize, but is nevertheless true, is that love itself inherently requires sacrifice. And he almost quotes verbatim from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, when God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. This is what the entire sacrificial system of Israel pointed to. Animals were offered in the temple to make atonement, to make a covering for sin. And sin is a failure to offer our own selves to God. If we were able to perfectly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, there wouldn't need to be sacrifices in the first place. The whole system of offering animals on an altar was a temporary provisional thing that anticipated a time when it would not be needed anymore. And in seeing this, we see the second point about love, that it is sacrificial. And Jesus demonstrates that for us. Whereas nobody has ever perfectly fulfilled this greatest commandment to love God and love neighbor as ourselves, Jesus not only perfectly fulfills that, but he loves his neighbor more than himself by giving himself up for us as the sacrifice. We can love God and our neighbors with our whole selves because God loved us with his whole self. When Jesus demonstrated his love for us by dying for us on the cross while we were still sinners, he gave up his very life, his body, his soul to be crucified for us. Only if we first receive his love for us by trusting him Can we have the power to love him and love others in return? Without his promised Holy Spirit coming to dwell within us upon receiving his love, we will strive to love, but never be transformed in order to do it. And the only adequate response to Jesus's sacrificial, all-encompassing love is to love with all of ourselves. As Paul puts in the New Testament, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So while the scribe affirms Jesus' answer and adds that second point about sacrifices, he doesn't actually have the last word in the debate. Jesus is the one who gives the verdict. Verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) He dropped the mic. The court is adjourned. Jesus got the last word. And in doing so, he shows us that love is also confrontational. Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He perceived this guy's motives, that he wasn't trying to trap Jesus like the other leaders were. Jesus had the ability to know what was inside of a person and saw in this guy genuine understanding. So rather than dealing with him like the others, where last week he told them, you are quite wrong. (laughs) He said, you are not far. And Jesus's authority over this whole discussion is revealed with the simple response. You see, the scribe had been sussing Jesus out the whole time. And now that Jesus has passed his test, he's like, oh, cool, Jesus, we're on the same side. He might even go to, like, to try to defend Jesus to the other religious leaders and be like, no, 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 he's cool, he's one of us. Yeah, he's got some like weird stuff about him, but we're basically saying the same thing. So it's all good, guys. You see, the scribe thinks that he's been putting Jesus on trial, but only then does he realize he's been talking to the judge. But friends, this is the natural disposition of every human heart. We all believe that God is actually on the hook to answer our questions. C.S. Lewis puts this brilliantly in his essay, God in the Dock. He says, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For a modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. <laughs> Do we see how ridiculous this is? We cannot love God and love our neighbor If this is our posture towards God in our hearts. So he says to the scribe, You're not far. And for him, it was simply that he didn't actually know God. He could give the right answers about God, but he couldn't perceive that he didn't quite know him. Remember the commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Well, who's the Lord? You have to know who he is if you're going to love him. And for the scribe, he didn't know that the Lord was standing right there looking at him. And for some of you, this may be true. You actually need to get to know Jesus so that you can love him. And that's why you're here checking out this whole Jesus thing. The real Jesus, not the one that has been co-opted and often forced to serve the agendas of others. But for those of us who call ourselves Christians, would this be Jesus' response to us? What does not far from the kingdom look like for us? Can we give the right answers about Jesus, but not actually have it make a difference in our lives? Like the book of James in the New Testament says, you believe that God is one, good for you. So do demons. (laughs) So, Are we on team demon (laughs) or do we know the truth but not actually live it out? We might think that we love God, but for many of us, there are other things competing. We attempt to love him with our minds, but leave our heart, soul, and strength out of the picture. Maybe for some of you, you've been in this position of not far for quite some time. Maybe testing the waters of following Jesus and keeping him over here, waiting for him to give a satisfactory answer to your burning question, whatever the hot topic is of your life. Like I can only get down with this whole Jesus thing if we are aligned on my views of politics or my sexuality or my freedom to choose who gets to speak into my life or not. See, the whole time we try to make Jesus jump through our personal hoops of our pet philosophies, thinking that he has to pass our test and that we sit in the judge's seat, and Jesus here lovingly shows us our place. It is not enough to agree with him. We must love him. His love demands all of us because it costs all of him. And it says after this, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They finally saw that there was no winning a debate with Jesus. But do we still think that we have a bone to pick with him about something? We need to ask how we are like this scribe. Are we able to affirm all of the right things about what it means to love God, but our lives tell a different story? We need to recognize that ultimately we are all like this scribe because Christians are not ones who pretend to have it all together and love God perfectly. We know that we don't. If you're walking with Jesus, you know the deep conflict and twisted motives within your own heart. And yet when we confess this to God, And to others, we know that we will be met by forgiveness and mercy because of his love for us demonstrated in his death on the cross. While our love may be divided and conflicted, his love is fixed and forever engraved on the palms of Jesus' hands. So today, friends, we need to recognize Jesus' right to give his assessment of where we stand with him and then actually listen. And we need to recognize that he deserves all of us, all of our love, because he gave us all of himself. We need to ask ourselves, what are we holding back from him who gave us all of himself? Let's pray together.